Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. Multi-Amory listeners, this week we are featuring an interview that I did on the podcast Initiated Survivor, hosted by Kelsey Harper. Kelsey is a clinical psychologist and also a survivor of sexual violence, and on her show, she speaks directly with other survivors to hear their stories and offer practical skills for reclaiming their lives. In this particular episode, I spoke with Kelsey about my personal experience surviving intimate partner violence within a non-monogamous context. I think there are already very few resources for survivors of violence that center queer people. And it's been my experience that there are basically zero resources that speak directly to non-monogamous and polyamorous people. So When Kelsey invited me to speak on the show, I was incredibly honored and excited to be able to share my experience and help others who have been in the same boat to not feel quite so alone. So, of course, have to give a content warning that we are talking about IPV, about intimate partner violence, though not in any kind of gratuitous or graphic detail. I hope you enjoy this interview. And if you enjoy the show, please go and check out Kelsey's show, Initiated Survivor. Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Welcome to Initiated Survivor, where we connect to our fiercest fuck community of survivors and badassery ensues. I'm Kelsey Harper. I'm a clinical psychologist and survivor, and I love to bring us together to share our stories as well as practical tips to recover and reclaim our lives. As a community, we have truly formidable power to change our world, so thank you so much for being here. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors of gender-based violence. Some of these discussions may be triggering and contain adult content. Please be mindful of your needs throughout. Hi, Dedeker. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, I think as we were setting up this conversation, I was getting more and more excited because you have such wonderful expertise and wisdom to share with people. And I think this is going to be such a valuable time to share with everyone. Thank you. I always get nervous whenever expertise gets attached to my name, but I don't know what other label to attach. So I guess I'll accept it. I know it it is weird. (laughs) It does feel like, like it's potential pressure. So I I speak Japanese conversationally. I I have conversational fluency, probably not professional fluency, but there is a word in Japanese called monoshiri, which literally, it literally translates to just like, you know, a thing. And it's kind of like a good, I think, in-between description. Yeah, that's how I like to think about it. I know some things, maybe not all the things, but some things. Nice. Oh, that's really cool. I know some things. Okay, so you know some things. I know some things, as it turns out. And 
after this, we'll all know something, (laughs) possibly. Uh Well, so can you share a little bit with us about your story? Yes. So the most important context for people to have behind my story is that for the past 10 or 11 years or so, I've been practicing what the researchers label as consensual non-monogamy, also sometimes called ethical non-monogamy. My particular flavor of it is sometimes called polyamory. Now, I don't know how much I need to explain polyamory. What I have seen over the course of the past decade is that it's become much more mainstream. It's become a term that people are much more familiar with versus a decade ago. So that's been good. But just to give a broad strokes explanation to people, what that means for me is it means I have multiple romantic partners at once, fully out in the open, fully consensually, you know, getting consent for this from everyone involved. There's no cloak and dagger kind of cheating or lying or dishonesty. It's just having multiple romantic and sexual partners all out in the open. This is something that I've been practicing for a very, very long time, sometimes to the extent where I forget how jarring it is to some people to think about that paradigm or think about that framework. But like I said, I am really glad to see that there's just so many more resources and more communities out there embracing this and being much more open about this. So I have been out of the closet, essentially, for several years now. I have written a book on the subject. I have an ongoing podcast about the subject. Like It's very much part of my persona, both my personal identity and professional identity. And then life threw me a huge curveball a few years back, back in 2016 or so, when I found myself in a relationship where things turned physically abusive. Let me try to think about exactly how many details I want to give here. Basically, long story short, I was going through a period of time where I was kind of trying on the whole digital nomad thing. So my work was remote. So I was hopping around a bunch of different countries, staying a month here, a month there. I had two partners at the time who who both lived back in the States. And I met someone on my travels. A few months later, after my travels, I decided to go stay with this person for a little while. And again, long story short, you know, without wanting to go into all the super nitty gritty, like the relationship took a turn for the worse. It ended up becoming physically abusive. And I was in a position at the time I was in the middle of editing my book. I didn't have a lot of money. I was pretty much underemployed. I was in another country where I didn't really know the language. I didn't really have any social ties or any support network where, you know, the first incident of abuse happened. And I just you know, it was like the rug was pulled out from underneath me. I had no idea what to do. You know, I think that it was one of those things where, like I think so many people would attest to, you hear about domestic violence or intimate partner violence as an abstract. And if you've never had a touch point to it, it's so easy to think, oh, well, if I was in situation that situation, this is exactly what I would do. Oh, well, I wouldn't tolerate that. Or, oh, I would leave way before it got to that point. And I thought for sure I was that person, you know, I'd already been in some bad relationships and toxic relationships, unhealthy relationships. I was someone who was training as a coach. I was working with people in their relationships. So I very much saw myself as I know things about relationships. And so clearly ending up in a situation that's abusive, like that's not going to happen to me. You know, I can recognize that from a mile away. And then it happened And I'm struggling to find the words to describe it, but it just like completely threw me for a loop, you know, like it was already my worldview and paradigm 
did not account for this happening to me, my life. And therefore, I didn't even know what to do. I didn't even know how to understand it, how to process it, how to talk about it, you know? And I was also really, really scared, really, really scared to leave this relationship, to move out of the place where I was staying. You know, there was like so much fear. I think so many of the typical things that so many survivors go through. And so I think, you know, looking back on that, that's the thing that's always sometimes surprising, but also sometimes not surprising to me, just the sudden state of intense cognitive dissonance that occurred within me of this horrible thing has happened. It's continuing to happen, but I'm still here. But I know it's not okay for this thing to be happening, but I also am too scared to leave. And I also, I don't think I can tell anybody because the minute I tell someone, I think my life is just going to explode. And so I was just paralyzed. I was just absolutely paralyzed. And I think that's something that people who have not been in that situation can't quite relate to or understand, you know, just the intense paralysis that can occur. For me, I was fortunate enough that I was still in the relationship. I left to go back to the States. And when I left to go back to the States, there was a little bit of a turning point within me, which again, I didn't even realize was happening. But it's like, as soon as I was able to literally put an ocean between myself and this person, even though we were technically still together, that... I kind of said, okay, I think I can actually do this now. I think I can actually leave this relationship. And bear in mind, still didn't tell anybody what was going on. Like still totally kept the abuse a secret, you know, got close to telling people, but just really couldn't let the words come out of my mouth. Basically what I needed at that point in order to actually leave the relationship is I did feel like I needed some kind of external permission, weirdly like once I was finally ready to do it. And so I basically talked to two people. I finally told two people. I went to a therapist for the first time in my life, had never gone to therapy, hired a therapist literally to have one session so the therapist could tell me, yeah, you should probably leave. It's okay to leave. And then the other person that I told was I finally told my mom, you know, the day before I broke up with him because my mom was a survivor of domestic violence as well. It's not something that we ever talked about very much, but I knew that that was the case. And she was literally the only person then that I knew had gone through something like this. And of course, I know now that connected to me many, many more people who are survivors of assault and of abuse. But she was the only one that I actually knew at the time. She also gave me permission, essentially. She was like, yeah, that's not okay. You should break up with this person. And then I was able to break up with them. And then the story doesn't end there. You know, it doesn't end just at the happy ending of, and then she triumphed and she walked off into the sunset and everything Mm -hmm. was okay. Because then I had to face telling my partners You know, and I think this is the unique part of the situation where I was in active romantic partnerships alongside the same time while someone was abusing me. And again, just another level of cognitive dissonance there that I think took place. So I finally had to tell my partners what was going on. And even after that, I I still was operating under this assumption of like, okay, I'm out of the relationship. Everything's going to be good now. Everything's going to be resolved, you know, and then six months later was when the PTSD started coming up. And that was really what catapulted me onto a big old epic journey of healing and understanding myself and really growing and changing and understanding trauma and learning that's brought me here today. That's kind of the broad strokes version of my story. Wow. I think about that kind of dramatic and sudden severe cognitive dissonance of like that paradigm shift of I had that too when I 
was raped, it was like, I, the weird, and this is the best that I can describe it because it also sounds so weird to say it, where it's like, I didn't plan on this happening, you know? And it's just like, yeah, nobody does. And also at the same time, similar kind of thought of like, it knew all the risk factors. I obey all the rules, all that kind of stuff to prevent this kind of thing. And look what happened. And that paradigm shift of having to understand this dynamic here. And especially, you know, some of those, those common risk factors or not necessarily risk factors, but things that make you very vulnerable when abuse happens in the sense of being underemployed and being in a country that is not one of your origin, you know, and not knowing the language. And so being completely alienated and how often that happens to people is part of this. And I think, you know, even people that feel very well educated on these relationships. Like we understand that there's things like grooming that take place and love bombing and all of these cycles that break down, you know, the parts of us that would know what the warning signs are and all of that going on in the context of a tremendous amount of vulnerability. What for you feels like helped shift that cognitive dissonance? Because it sounds like that putting an ocean between you kind of helped a bit because there was also this action of, I know that what I need right now is somebody to tell me it's okay to do this, which also feels already a shift in that cognitive dissonance of like, even if it's not completely flipped yet, there's some movement that's happened of, I can go get some services or support. I know there's a thing that could happen that will help me make that flip. What do you think that was for you? Yeah. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me was I, I think there was something about going back to the States and now I'm reconnecting with my partner who is in the States and literally physically being back in a situation where I'm in a partnership that feels safe again. I have this very distinct memory of flying back from that trip and reuniting with my partner Jace and going over to his house and falling asleep on the couch, you know, next to him while he was playing video games. And part of it was the jet lag, but I just remember feeling my body. There was this deep, deep relaxation of not even realizing how tense I had been the whole time that I was in this domestic violence situation, just constantly. And being back around this other partner where things are safe and good and healthy and functioning. And Again, a unique experience that's not something that everybody necessarily has, you know, because I had multiple partners. But I don't know, it was something about just having that reminder. And it's not like when I was living with the guy who abused me, it's not like my other partners disappeared or whatever. Of course, we we're still in contact and talking to each other, things like that. But there was something about being physically around someone who loved me and who touched me and who had sex with me, but who was safe, you know, who I wasn't constantly afraid was going to hurt me or say something hurtful or things like that, that did really, really shift that. I do think having those embodied experiences of safety and security can get the message through so much faster than just having that told to your face or just reading it in a book. I wanted to add to what you're saying about, you know, these things that make us vulnerable and these images that we create around what we think we can expect when it comes to abuse or assault or things like that. I know very much a factor in my case was my former partner, the one that perpetuated the abuse, 
did not fit the image in my mind of what an abuser looks like and acts like and sounds like. You know, mm-hmm. I think this is probably because of pop culture, because of movies and TV, but I think the low hanging fruit image of a quote unquote wife beater is he's probably literally wearing a wife beater and maybe poor, maybe drunk, maybe addicted to drugs, maybe just like really, really mentally unstable. My partner wasn't any of those things. He had a master's degree in a language that wasn't even his native language. He had this super high paying job, very, very respected and carrying a lot of responsibility and very put together. And I think that was part of it as well. And that's something that I do come up with when I'm talking to people about abuse and cycles of abuse is people don't realize that this literally happens at every socioeconomic level in every racial class, among every kind of different sexuality and different gender, you know, that we have this very, very narrow image of what an assaulted person looks like and what an assaulter or abuser looks like and acts like, which really is not sufficient. Hey, everybody, we hope you're enjoying this episode. We're going to take a quick break to talk about some ways that you can support this show We love being part of a community of people who are making content and putting it out there into the world for free. And the way that we're able to do that is through our sponsorships and through support from listeners like you. So please take a moment, check them out, see if any are interesting to you. And you can also go to multiamory.com slash join and learn how to support the show and join our private communities there. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy, or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. Yeah, it's it's like how rape culture really thrives on perpetuating this idea and imagery that also perpetuates the idea that rapists are this kind of outlier creature. They're hiding in the bushes, you know, they're strangers, they're these psychopathologically you know, minded people that are just like these just complete outliers in society and culture. And it just permits and enables perpetrators to actually exist among us and and for themselves to be like, yeah, I'm doing these things, but I'm not that. So this isn't a problem that needs to be solved. 
you know, and for also rape culture to persist in saying the problem itself is such an outlier. It's such a fluke, like you just have to be prepared to prevent it or to try to stay as safe as possible, rather than that this is a problem that is so pervasive that it actually has deep roots in our culture for its existence. And very similarly, I think that intimate partner violence is absolutely one of those ones where we have such this stereotyped image that gets continually perpetuated as a way of continuing to reinforce and support it occurring because there's so many things that benefit from intimate partner violence functioning in our culture and communities too. Yeah. Yeah. Hard agree on that one. Yeah. So it sounds, I mean, it's, you're sharing such a beautiful moment of like being asleep on the couch with your partner and also being able to observe truly within you like this just very real experience and the sensations and embodiment of safety and in like a safe attachment, you know, safe, secure attachment with your partner. How did the partners come in and support you through this? Well, I will say that I think There's a lot of stuff that's hard about being polyamorous and there's a lot of stuff that's really hard about having any kind of non-normative relationship in our heteronormative, mononormative society. I do think one of the areas that was a great benefit was even just knowing that even if I leave this particular partner, I'm still going to have access to love, affection, care, support, sex, touch, you know, all those things like which is not something necessarily that if I was in a monogamous partnership that I would have, maybe Mm -hmm. I could be like, okay, well, I know my family will come through for me or maybe my friends will come through for me or maybe there's other resources I can look toward. But I think even in your regular everyday garden variety breakup, there's still that fear, right? What if this means I'm unlovable? What if no one's going to love me again? What if no one's going to touch me again? What if no one's going to make me feel safe again? And I do think that was very beneficial for me to at least have that at the end of the day, to know that yeah, it's going to be, even though this person is abusing me, like I still loved them. It was still devastating to think about ending the relationship and breaking up with them. But at least I know I'm not going to be just completely emotionally alone while I'm nursing this broken heart and recovering. So there was that. And now bringing my two partners up to speed on what had actually happened was hard. I think that part of the reason why I didn't tell anybody what was going on as it was happening was this shame this intense shame. It's completely illogical, but our culture does set up survivors and victims to immediately think, I did something to cause this. Either I did something to cause this, or I provoked this, or I made the wrong choice, or I should have left earlier, or I should have left at a particular time. You know, And of course, for me, as more time went on and there were more incidences and I just didn't leave, that pit of shame just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And so then the cost of actually telling someone becomes higher and higher and higher and higher because my nightmare was I would tell someone and of course their first response would be, why didn't you leave? Or why aren't you leaving? Or why did you let this happen? The sad thing is that that concern is not completely invalid, right? Because people do say those things. Mm -hmm. People say those things all the time. People say them in very public forums, you know, like victim blaming, unfortunately, is still alive and well. And so it was really hard. I, I think another reason why I just went to this like one therapy session and also talked to my mom is I had this sense of, I need to practice with a total stranger that I'm just paying to hear this story so that I can say these words out loud so someone can know. So this isn't my first time around just telling somebody, you know, when I tell my partners. And 
What was interesting, I call it interesting now, at the time it was really difficult to get through, but what was interesting was both of my partners had very, very different reactions. So Jay's, of course, was was devastated and was upset and had his own emotions that kind of came up around it. But I think he just had a little bit more know-how about dealing with victims of assault or supporting someone that you love who's been a victim, you know, so he was very gentle. He wasn't very pushy. You know, he didn't ask any kind of deep probing questions. He really didn't ask a lot of questions at all. He really let me be the one to lead the conversation and lead the storytelling. I think he did some of his own research looking up, you know, resources that are directed toward people who have loved ones who have come forward as being victims Mm -hmm. or as being survivors. So that was really, really helpful. And then my partner, Alex, was... I think he had much more of a shocked and like almost an angry reaction, both angry at the guy who hurt me and a little bit angry at me also. You know, I think there was a little bit of this, oh my God, how could you not tell me? Like, how could you keep this from me? How could this be going on? You know, and, and you know, he and I have resolved that since then. I think it did help that Jace actually reached out to him. The two of them collaborated, which is another kind of hidden bonus of certain forms of polyamory is that, you know, that relationship is called a metamorph relationship, but your partner's other partner, that they reached out to each other to help share resources and talk about and could be sources of support in supporting me, you know, so that I'm not the one carrying the full burden of having to educate my supporters on how to support me. And basically, I mean, after he and Jay's kind of connected on that, like Alex's response completely changed overnight. You know, he, I think he kind of realized like, okay, I need to go about this a much different way. I need to handle my own angry emotions in a different way. And and I'm happy to say that, you know, Alex and I have since talked about that and unpacked that. We've resolved that essentially. But yeah, that was also something I was like, I, there's no one who's teaching about this. Like there's no textbook that's talking about that necessarily. I mean, I do think that probably a lot of survivors learn that there's such a wide variety of responses from people in your life. But mm-hmm. I wasn't... I really had no idea what to expect. I was only expecting the worst. I mean, in many ways to try to prepare for it and to stay safe and especially that shame informing that, you know, and I think it was raising a lot of the alarms for me of how we talk about that. Like one of the signs that somebody might be in an abusive relationship is that they're getting isolated from their peers, which is definitely, it is true that they have partners that will do that sometimes in very direct or indirect ways of why do you hang out with those people can be a very indirect way. And I think what you're bringing up also is how our culture of victim blaming also serve to isolate and to alienate you from the community and how potentially harmful and could, I mean, and was very harmful and how that that is so harmful for so many people that there is this dynamic of the relationship and the violence is perpetrated in the relationship isn't actually just in the relationship. There is violence perpetrated by our culture and, and how we interact with issues around violence and partnerships and specifically gender-based violence. And I think that's such a valuable thing to show too, that especially for people out there that are feeling like, I, I do feel extremely isolated and alienated, but that wasn't necessarily just my the partner who did that and the shame and guilt that might come up around that too, because we kind of just eliminate the whole culture community topic from the topic 
when we discuss these kinds of things. And I think what's really fantastic is you're also describing how you had kind of like a micro community intervention that happened for you with your partners. Cause that's kind of when we, when I think of, and, and some of my, my guests have talked about this too, of like the vision for the future is not to continue this reactive carceral reaction to violence, but to actually move more towards strengthening and restoring power to communities to perform justice and healing and reconnection. And that's something that you're actually describing, it sounds like happened for you with your partners, particularly like, it's just like sending so many like little heart emojis through my (laughs) mind of like your two partners contacting each other and supporting each other on how to best be a support for you. That feels to me like, oh, that's the definition of love. Like when people go out of their way to learn how to be there for you. Yeah. And I think that, again, I'll echo the same sentiment that there's a lot of things about choosing to practice non-monogamy that's really difficult. But something that I do really appreciate about the non-monogamous community is there is an inherent understanding that, you know, maybe this tiny little nuclear family unit that we've all been encouraged to cram ourselves into, maybe that's not serving everybody. Maybe we need more than just this one other monogamous partner and our two kids. And we just stay in our house and we only care about what happens to the family unit. We don't really care about the neighborhood. We don't really care about the community at large. It's really just about me, my partner, my family. And while that does work for some people, I think they're it's a conversation that I think happens more often in non-monogamous spaces because first of all, fundamentally people are breaking that structure. They're breaking out of just having one partner into having multiple partners. Some people are experimenting with raising kids in community, whether that's a combination of myself, my co-parent, who's no longer a romantic partner, but like their new partner and my two partners or whatever, you know, people are definitely happy to experiment with different ways of being. And I think there is much more this emphasis on we need more to sustain ourselves than just a nuclear family or just one partner. And that doesn't mean we all have to go out and get six romantic partners, but it means that maybe we need to be leaning into our friends more. Maybe we need to be prioritizing our friends in the same way that we would prioritize a single romantic partner. You know, these are the relationships that also give us life, that also support us. It's not just about the one spouse necessarily. And yes, you know, I do think the moments that for me too have just warmed my heart the most have been those scenarios where it's not just having multiple partners coming together, but like my two partners collaborating with my best friend or playing video games with an ex-partner of mine. And it's not like weird or awkward or me connecting with my partner's other partner and being able to support them in particular ways that it does seem like this way of living and relating, at least in my experience, opens up more of those channels and more of that willingness to say, the way that we've kind of been taught to relate and create these tiny, 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 tiny little nuclear micro communities, maybe we can break that a little bit and reach out for more of our needs. Yeah. You know, I know for me, the experience is like with connecting with relationships that felt like community building of like almost feeling like kind of getting woven in. Like it feels like I'm now a part of like either this greater fabric for a metaphor or like a stray that's getting kind of taken into the pack in a way, how healing that is, like how devastating isolation feels. And sometimes that isolation, like we're surrounded by people 
we can even intellectually understand that people know or get what's going on. Because I know for me, it was like, I know this is a thing. I know that there are other survivors. I know that this world exists. And it's like, I, I literally cannot feel or find a way to connect in and how devastating that feels. And then to be connected in community and not just as part of like, people understand me and and they're here for me and they're supporting me, but kind of like how you describe that there's so many modes of functioning, the way that we also contribute to the, the community also helps us feel woven in and purposeful and deliberate. And I know that was a huge part for me that felt like it turned the corner on recovery of like coming from a place of I'm just surviving. I'm literally getting through day to day to like, okay, you know, actually I'm rebuilding and I'm becoming someone new in this new world that I live in and how powerful being woven in in such a purposeful way was for that. Yeah. I mean, even just the power of your body and your nervous system being okay to connect with other human beings again, because when another human being has done maybe the most painful, terrifying, awful thing that you've ever experienced up to that point, I think there is the natural wanting to turn inward and isolate and to shut down, being able to be back in that mode again of connecting to other people and being able to be vulnerable again and open yourself up to other people. That can be so, so transformational for sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining us in this episode and connecting with our badass community. Thank you to Sam Valentine and her awesome team at Fast Forward Productions for producing, editing, publishing, and all around making this podcast possible. If you found something in this episode that resonated with you, please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. This quick but meaningful action supports the show and helps make us more visible to other survivors and allies who might be looking for support and connection. I love connecting with listeners, survivors, and allies. So if you found something in this episode useful or interesting, please screenshot the episode and share it on your stories and tag me at Initiated Survivor. An important and final note, while I am a clinical psychologist, this episode and podcast is not a replacement for mental health care. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Neither the host nor the guests are rendering mental health or other professional advice. And this podcast does not constitute an established professional relationship. If you are looking for mental health care or professional help, please seek it out. We have some links in the show notes that may assist with this, or you can contact your insurance carrier for a referral. Again, that was from the show Initiated Survivor, hosted by Kelsey Harper. You can find more of Kelsey's work at drkelseyharper.com or by following Initiated Survivor wherever you get your podcasts. The best place to share your thoughts with other listeners on this episode is in the episode discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can post about it in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to multiamory.com join. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. 
Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. 